Sorry, your language was ambiguous. I thought it was only possible in Japanese. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of Not Daily Podcast. And this is a special episode because, contrary to other episodes, this time we prepared a little bit. <laughs> What do you mean a little bit? Quite a bit. Okay, yeah. We prepared quite a bit. <laughs> I, I, I say a little bit so that, uh, you know, it alleviates the expectations. So that's still guilt-free. Oh, yeah. no, ex Still no expectation. But it is... An episode we've been talking about for a long time and something I wanted to do because I've read pretty much like most of what I could get my hands on on the topic. So it's going to be fun. And the topic is psychoanalysis in Japan. So it's all starting essentially with the quote from Lacan who said like Japanese people don't need to be psychoanalyzed. And do you know the end of the quote? Because it's really funny. <laughs> I think I've read it like last week, but I can't remember. So a person dwelling in this language doesn't need to be psychoanalyzed except to regularize it, uh, their relation with uh, machines, especially uh, gambling machines. <laughs> really? Yeah. Code goes, except to regularize their relations with uh, gambling machines or like all kind of mechanical clients. Okay, mechanical clients. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna talk... The gambling like machines is the fun part. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we need a bit of a disclaimer that like we're gonna talk a lot about Lacan. Neither of us have studied Lacan quite seriously. Wait, you didn't study Lacan seriously? I was gonna say, like, I dabble in psychoanalysis, but I've never get gotten courses, so I don't know anything about the basics. I had, like, maybe, like, one course about Lacan... But damn, the whole premise of this episode is flawed. <laughs> it it it's no, but like it was seven years ago, so like I can't really remember. I had a lot of courses about Freud, so I know Freud quite a bit. Like maybe there yeah, are one about Lacan. Like Lacan is not super big in some French universities. Some other some other university like they study Lacan quite a bit. Most of my knowledge is by like reading it and my father, who is a Lacanian. So we talked quite a bit about it with my father. So I have an understanding, but not a university understanding, which is good because Lacan didn't like whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's good that we uh, are clear about our prerequisite knowledge. So I think like, we need to say that we will say a lot of things that is wrong, but we'll try to make sense of them. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll try our best. We won't say anything that we know to be wrong. Exactly. <laughs> we'll try to be correct. Do you I mean, like, basically, no one knows what Lacan was trying to say, and everyone is trying to basically discover what he was trying to say. So. Did Lacan himself know what he was trying to say? Or? I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I, I'm actually not sure. That's the whole thing about psychoanalysis and conti continental philosophy in general. It's sometimes it's a bit... Uh, it's sometimes is like poetry, but I don't think it's valueless, though. I was hoping that looking at Japan through the lens of psychoanalysis, maybe we can derive some tips for us to live a good life or whatever. Let's try, let's try. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to convince like us and the listener, like, why should you stick with us for like one hour discussing Japan, <laughs> Japanese language? But I think there's, there's probably some stuff in it 
for your mental health, maybe. <laughs> so the premise of the episode is Lacan say that Japanese people don't need psychoanalysis, which means that they're better for that than us. So let's discover why. So we can be better. Is that the premise? I think so. It's okay. It might be quite a step because maybe it's not better. Maybe it's worse. Maybe it's just different. But like... I don't know. Let's try to see what we can get out of it. <laughs> okay. Okay. And I propose to start with the big point straight away, what Lacan was talking about when he was saying that, because I have a lot of other things complementary to that, but he was mostly talking about the Japanese language. We can start with language. <laughs> So, a little introduction to the Japanese language for for the listeners who might not be familiar. Japan has four different alphabets, writing systems. Four? They have kanji, the Chinese characters. They have two different simplifications of them, hiragana and katakana. And they also use the Roman alphabet for brands like occasional nouns, band names, band names, stuff like that. So when you look at the Japanese text, you see stuff that is obviously different from each other. This comes from the evolution of language. I'm going to do a one minute aside explaining it. Uh, originally, Japanese didn't have writing. They saw Chinese people had writing. They thought it was great. So they started copying Chinese, but they didn't make their own writing. They just copied the Chinese writing. Oh, that shit is cool. Let's copy it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then uh, they tried to simplify it. It didn't work. So the simplifications plus the original stuck. <laughs> and it's basically a gigantic mess, which is like, if you wanted to design a messy language, I don't think you could do as well as a job as history. <laughs> Does a messiness feel like Japanese is also kind of messy orally. It doesn't just come from the writing part. Is that true? Or like, is it mostly the writing part that is messy? That's fair. I'd say that Japanese grammar is pretty loose. Oh, yeah, I forgot to talk about it in the uh, in the disclaimer part. Uh, the all, all knowledge of Japanese language is me self-teaching Japanese for like 10 years or something. Anyway, uh, when, uh, when copying the Chinese characters for their use, something happened. Because <laughs> you... <laughs> <laughs> you thought this was the end of the story but it's just the beginning something happened out of yeah. nowhere so they were like oh this character in Chinese means house so we're gonna say it means house in Japanese but some other times they were like oh this character in Chinese sounds like ko so we're gonna use it to say ko in Japanese <laughs> <laughs> And so the Chinese character mapping to Japanese is so sometimes for semantic reasons, sometimes for oral reasons, on top of which they added the Japanese pronunciation of everything, obviously. So you end up with the kanji system, which is the Chinese characters, which have different pronunciations and meanings than their Chinese counterparts. And you often, very often, have a character that has different meanings and pronunciation. Basically, there is no one-to-one -one mapping between writing, reading, and meaning. <laughs> so that is a bit messy to say the least. But you straight away notice that there is kind of a plurality of everything. Like there is 
no one-to-one -one relation. It, it blurs the relationship to the truth. I think that's what uh, Lacan was saying. So the, the writing becomes so fucked up that it has no link to the signified, which is the truth. Whereas in Western language, the, the letter, like writing, is supposed to stand for some kind of abstract truth. Is that it? Mm. Would you say, I think we'll talk a lot about signified and signifier. Maybe we can just take a step back. It's a very good time to, to specify. So you have signifier is a word. So for example, like a table is a signifier, like the word that you pronounce table is a signifier because it signifies something that is in your head, like the concept of table, more or less, is a signified. Is signified by the signifier. Kind of like platonic concept of table. We could say that, except that like it's an actual thing in your head that you don't really have access to, but it's not outside of you. It's not. It's not real. Meaning, like it's not share. It's not a shared conception of the table. It's like your concept of table that you don't have access to. That you signify by the word table. Is it okay to say? That maybe it's the truth or something like the the actual like the well, the truth the one true thing the one true thing for you yeah okay that lives in your head well that's what Lacan said cool <laughs> that's that's a good start okay so to come back to what you were saying like wh what you're saying is like in Western language you have like a one to one signified signifier pair which is like table T A B L E is linked directly to like the concept of table. Whereas in Japanese, what he would say is that this link is blurry because table, however you write it, is what? Like, I'm not sure I understand that part. So the way it would happen for Japanese, for table, for instance, is that you have the concept of a table. Typically, you would have a couple of different ways to say it. <laughs> for the different pronunciations. Really? Potentially. Oh, yeah, like milk. Yeah, for instance milk and gyunyu. What's fun is in Chinese, milk is also like something like new. Yeah, so the reason you end up with different pronunciation is very often like you get the pronunciation from the English settlers and from the Chinese influence or whatever. You, you get different roots that makes their way into the language. And for each of these pronunciations, or not, <laughs> you would have different writing. Uh, sometimes it's the same, sometimes it's different. So sometimes two things that sound different are written by the same sign. Sometimes two things that are written by two different signs sound the same. Basically, no one-to-one -one mapping. <laughs> but isn't that true for Western language as well? Meaning, like, we have synonyms? Yeah, Western languages have synonyms. And mostly, I think Japanese is mostly about homonyms. Because one th so one, the thing with the Japanese language is that it it doesn't have doesn't really work by letter, it works by syllables. So you have a lot less possible syllables than other languages, like one or two order of magnitude less, meaning there is a lot more homonyms. So I think you can kind of maybe see it with the, Jap with the Western synonyms and homonyms, except in, J in Western languages, it's like a weird exception, whereas in Japan it's the basic rule. Everything is a homonym, everything is a synonym. So it's very context-based, basically. It's extremely context-based, especially since, as we were saying before, the grammar is very loose and it's a state-based grammar. So when you want to say, I eat, you, you just say eat. And depending on what was before, what would be after or whatever, like there's no conjugation. Everything is inferred from context. 
<laughs> so one side effect of the fact that there is so many homonyms is that it's very easy and common to make all kinds of puns. It's a, a wonderful language for puns. So I was thinking that it's pretty uh, fun that the ability to make puns is directly correlated with the ability to be psychoanalyzed. <laughs> but That's weird because so Lacan is known for loving puns with his patient. Yeah, but so maybe the thing with Lacan is that he used the pun as this exceptional thing that brings light on your psyche, whereas you can't really do that if the whole thing is puns. It's not <laughs> exceptional anymore. I think that's the part that ruins it. Mm. So... What you would say is that Japanese people live in a... How would you say that? I would say that they live in a permanent state of ambiguity. Because of their language. Because, among other things that we can discuss later, <laughs> of their language. <laughs> uh, the language is certainly a big part, I mean, of your thinking process, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I, th I feel like this is the, the 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 core of the language argument is all about ambiguity because everything like there's no singular truth you cannot access this signif what, what signified let's just say concept and world you know like <laughs> you, you cannot access the concept because everything stands for everything else and but also though lacan is really 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 focused on language like, he's, he's known for that. All his theories about language. He worked a lot on social. Like, it's really mm -hmm. his thing. But if you take a step back, I don't know. I've always found it funny slash not understandable how... So there's that much focus on language. In the same theory, like, what Lacan say is thinking that a word is an object is a sign of psychosis. But that's what he does always. Like, this much focus... Like forgetting about what you're signifying, forgetting about the concept, taking the word as a, as a thing in itself is weird. Like it's weird and like it doesn't make that much sense because there's always context. And even, and, and that's where his theory for me kind of doesn't make sense. But like what he's saying is like every signified is linked. There's a link of concept, which is kind of the context of what, like when you speak like a table, like it's linked with a concept of table, which is linked with like many, many other concepts. But like all of this link is kind of forgotten when you say, okay, the word table, so what you're saying is blurry because of the etymology of the word. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? You say table or table? Like no one think about the etymology of the word. Like no one does that. Like it doesn't even flink in your head. Like you don't know the etymology. So that's why like I don't really understand the point <laughs> at is all. Okay, that's a very good point because I've read papers in the literature that argued precisely about that. <laughs> so okay. uh, let me quote them. <laughs> <laughs> and then we can go back. Uh, then we can How go prepared? Back to it. How prepared? Very prepared. So, in a paper by uh, Luke Ogasawara entitled Why Lacan Says No One Who Dwells in the Japanese Language Has a Need to Be Psychoanalyzed, uh, that's basically what he he, he advances basically what you're what you're countering. <laughs> so it advances the uh, the other point. It says like, oh, the Japanese language is so diverse. When you look at a page, you see different writings, different types of texts, and his whole thing is to compare uh, Japanese to uh, Finnegan's Wake. 
from James Joyce. I know that Lacan really use really like this example. And so he says that Japanese basically is a perpetual translation which became which becomes language, like not really a language per se. He says that Japanese is all la langue. <laughs> Uh, the Chinese reading of a character is the la linguistic side, whereas the Japanese reading is the significant side. Anyway, so that's what he advances in that paper. Yay for, yay for. So the main point of the of what you were saying, and the the clearest one, is that the Japanese language is a perpetual translation of like the old Chinese versus like whatever. Ogasawara says Japanese. Is a is a complete uh, perpetual translation and yeah it's he says it's kind of like Finnegan Wake <laughs> essentially <laughs> but but how is that not true for French for example so how is that not true versus like Greek and Latin so to come back to this is exactly what you're well, this is more or less what you were saying before there is a rebuttal that came out last year year I think uh, uh, wow active psychoanalysis debate yeah yeah, yeah. so in 2009 first part published 2019 and second part published last February 2021 <laughs> very active uh, a rebuttal by uh, PJ Van Hecker in a article titled The Japanese Subject and the Unconscious uh, who basically says uh, dude this is bullshit <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Japanese is nothing like Finnegan's Wake because Finnegan's Wake is built in one alphabet. And in Japanese, you should consider... So it says that in Lacanian terms, the Japanese language doesn't really use three different letters. The letter for Japanese is kind of like the sound, is the pronunciation that is the ground truth. That's what he advocates. Okay. He says, like, yeah, of course, nobody thinks about the etymology of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, you have the ground truth that is the sound. Yeah, no one think about the writing as well when you speak. No one think about the writing, and when you see when you see the writing, you're not saying, "Oh, this comes from Chinese and has gone through this whole history." <laughs> In a way, your rebuttal is is very good because it's a cutting edge debate, cutting edge psychoanalysis. Yeah, uh, but I'm not super convinced by that. I mean, I agree that uh, it makes no sense to say that Japanese, like you don't think that you're reading Chinese when you read Japanese. You don't think like, oh, this is Chinese, this is Portuguese, this is like, you don't think about the etymology at all. But there is still a lot more ambiguity in Japanese than in other, in Western languages, mostly because of the, of the lack of, well, I was going to say the lack of syllables. But see, like when you read a text in, French or English, your words can get the meaning most of the, like the very large majority of the time, don't need a special context. Whereas Japanese, if you take the sentence in isolation, most of the time it will not mean anything. So it's true that you have... The sentence, the whole sentence. Well, not most of the time. Let's say there's it's frequent that the whole sentence requires other sentences wow, okay. to be understood. So I agree that it's something that you see in Western languages, but it's a matter of degrees, <laughs> kind of. It, it's, it all like, comes back to what I was saying before, the exception in English becomes the rule in Japanese. This episode is brought to you by the Back of Your Mind. Back of Your Mind, 
found in every human being on earth. It's a must-see if we say so ourselves. So, to recap, the main thing that is different be between Japanese and Western language is that in Japan... You have a lot more ambiguity. <laughs> everything is context-based and there's a lot of ambiguity. And then what? <laughs> So what? So I have a sentence that might be helpful that I took uh, as a note from a paper called Freud, Lacan and Japan from Kazuhige Shingo saying the ambiguity. So he was mostly talking about the ambiguity of reading from the character. Mm -hmm. So the ambiguity frustrates the process of true repression or the half aphanasis of the subject in relation to language. Does that mean anything to you? The aphanasis? Yeah, basically the ambiguity fucks up the aphanasis. It was mostly a Freud, thi Freud thing, so maybe you know it. <laughs> aphanasis? How do you write that? A-P-H-A-N-I-S-I-S. -I -I <laughs> the disappearance of sexual desire. I have a theory about what it means. <laughs> I think it means like when you get socialized, you learn rules, social rules through languages. So this frustrates your sexual pulsions. And what this, uh, this guy might be saying is that because everything is ambiguous, there is no clear okay. rule. Okay, yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense. So so just like for the listeners, I think, like, small recap of psychoanalysis theory. So language in Lacan is a thing that, like, language is what you would say the law, meaning when you're a kid, you want to do a lot of shit and blah, blah, blah. You want to, I don't know, like, do a lot of things. And you, your father say no. And when you're an infant, everything that you want is given by, like, your parents. But at one point, someone, like, some parents will say, like, no. Like, I won't give to your desire. Like, just, like, cry it out. I don't care. And that is a birth of language in, like, small infants. Not small infants, and, like, two years old. Because they want to answer that. Like, they want to answer, like, they desire something. They can't have it. And so they, they need to speak to, to say their truth. And that's, that's also very important in the constitution of identity because it's the first time you consider yourself as distinct from your desire, right? You can't have it, so there is something that cannot have something else, etc. So see, here you see that language is a lot more important than the tool. Like the, the... So then if the language is ambiguous, so if basically the no is not a no, then you can't repress shit. That's what this paper was saying. <laughs> so the, the, the implicit thing in here is that the law is like the law with a big L. It's not very, it's not a law, right? It's a unique set of rules. And because of this constant mess, you don't know what you to build yourself in opposition from, kind of. It's like, uh, it's funny because in Japanese, it's very, very rare that anyone would say no to you, actually. <laughs> they would say, ah, oh, maybe not. No, no, you're supposed to understand that maybe means no. Like, but it, it doesn't. Well, it does, yeah. So see, here you see again ambiguity. Yeah, yeah. So it's not just ambiguity in the language, it's also ambiguity in the culture around it, etc. But I think it's linked. And that's interesting. Like, I think it's like maybe the best example. Not having a real no 
is very telling, I think, about like this ambiguity. I mean, the, fortunately, there is a real no. It's just never used. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So is there a real no if like no one uses it? Um, if there's no one to use a word, oh. does the world exist? I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, uh, this is a caricature. There is something like when you say like when someone will tell you, do you live in Tokyo? You can say no. <laughs> it's, it's a different meaning of no. If someone say, can I... I don't know. Can I go to the toilet? Can they say no? Yeah, in a, in a matter of social, I don't think this would happen. What do you mean? I don't think this would happen. Imagine like, I don't know, you go to the doctor, they have like a personal toilet just for their use. You're saying, can I go to the toilet? I think what might happen is the, you're going to make your doctor be stuck in a loop saying uh, something like, oh, the personal toilet is for employees only. <laughs> So this uh, this is a very good, very good segue because uh, I wanted to say that to me, the interesting point is beyond language. There is a lot more things to say about Japanese than just the way it's written from Chinese. To be honest, I think that the writing part is the less convincing part. I don't know about that, but I know that's where Lacan started. So I wanted to use this as the entryway. <laughs> but, and, and it's a very clear way to set up the permanent ambiguity in which the Japanese people dwell. <laughs> but yeah, but the important thing about like actual clinic like being at a psychoanalyst like talking is that like the analyst will never explain anything to you like so you're the guy that is explaining what you're talking about the pun if you don't hear it maybe it will like do something like i'm a cough or like tell you something but he will never tell you like what's important about it so it's the guy that is being analyzed job to actually analyze it and so if the guy heard like she she whatever then like the pun is about the father if he didn't hear that and hear like the other thing then the pun is about the other thing but like there's no one true pun <laughs> well maybe maybe the fact that there is so many possible puns makes this process really complicated but like th that's the thing that i really don't understand because it only needs to make sense to the one guy talking is the point saying that it cannot make sense to the one guy talking because it's so ambiguous so he will never catch it on so it's not possible to psychoanalyze these people because it's so ambiguous that no one little like language trick will pop up as significant or is the point I don't see any other point, to be honest. Okay, I see the other point, and that's the point I like, and I think maybe can be useful for other people. So either what you said, like they cannot be analyzed, or they don't need to be analyzed, meaning they already saved, <laughs> they already cured. And if yes, can we be cured too? Are they already cured, meaning, meaning what? I don't know. Are they already in a state of post-analysis? whatever the analysis is for <laughs> isn't the analysis supposed to like make you understand that there is no one true truth or something like that it's to be okay with your objet petit a, which to, to be able to thrive in ambiguity <laughs> to be able to thrive with not being complete with the real but yeah. and i think that maybe just maybe the the the, um, the constant ambiguity of the Japanese language makes them more okay with not being complete. Okay, we need really like to calm down on theory or explain it. <laughs> Basically, everyone 
some someday in their life feel that like something is missing it's like something is up with this thing like there's no meaning it's, like, uh, yeah it's it's nice because it's the continuity of what you were saying before your example right from the first time someone tells you no then there will be a part of you that that desires something else <laughs> like there's something that is not fulfilled like you're like fuck what you're trying to do like the theory of like psychoanalysis is of Lacan less so Freud but like the theory of Lacan is that like you're always looking to to fill that lack that hole in your life so for some people like they're really not okay with that shit and so they have symptoms the aim of the psychoanalysis is to be okay with that to be okay with the lack and to be able to live your life without having to be depressed without having to have this phobia without having to like do all sort of like OCD stuff like that sort of thing What we're saying, what you're saying, and what Lacan is saying is that Japanese people don't feel that lack. Well, maybe. <laughs> what Lacan is maybe saying is... Yeah, but, but like, wouldn't feel that lack because they were never said no, so they don't feel it. Because they might not have it. Because of this constant ambiguity, there is not an I that is opposed to a thing that denies it. Basically, the, the why, why do you suffer is because you think you are an I, but you think you find out that the I is incomplete, kind of. And so this incompleteness is this... You can summarize it roughly saying that you suffer from a lack of completeness. But the Japanese doesn't feel complete in the first place. <laughs> Kind of. And so one thing that I wanted to say about that, and that's a good segue, is that there is also no real word to say I in Japanese. There's really the, the, so the whole language is uh, a mess of ambiguity, but it's especially true when it comes to identity. There is no I in Japanese. <laughs> What do you mean? Meaning like there's no like, I don't know, like I remember like learning Japanese for, I don't know, one day. And the first thing you learn is like Watashiwa or something. Yeah, nobody uses that. This is grammar book <laughs> thing. Okay, okay. So there is some ways to refer to yourself, but it's always like for Watashi, it's not really used and it's context dependent. You can't do that all the time. And Watashi is only for women of a certain... Well, <laughs> there is no unambiguous way to refer to yourself, let's say. <laughs> Could you say that it's always linked to society? Yeah. Meaning yeah. like... So Watashi has a lot of rules dictating its use, for instance. So there's no I without the social aspects of being. Yeah. And there is no real you either. Meaning to refer to one another, even in a one-to-one -one conversation, you use someone's name with the suffix so that they're not so close the, with the suffix that they're not so close you are and whatever name you choose being the first name or last name or maybe a nickname also depends on your respective status so it's not there's never going to be one word by which everyone calls you and there's never going to be a word by which you call yourself to everyone okay so it, there's always a sense of your place in society like you're never removed from society itself yeah you don't there's no you that exists in a vacuum kind of like the, the concept of you in a vacuum doesn't really exist more or less like <laughs> okay i i know i'm making some big assumptions like the big leaps here i have i have a 
a source <laughs> uh, that I haven't been able to check. <laughs> no, but, uh, apparently, uh, scholar Tsuiki Kosuke postulates that there is no I in Japanese, which I think I've explained a little bit what this would mean. But yeah, basically, it's kind of like, think of it as an extreme pluralism, kind of. There's creation of the I is frustrated the creation of the self is frustrating in very early stages it is a world that makes it impossible to construct a self more or less or construct an unitary self like the self is already always already fragmented so I, I let you react a little bit but there's actually a quote from Lacan that uh, I don't know summarizes clarifies it <laughs> perfectly is there any quote from Lacan that clarify anything I think so so Maybe it's a wrong quote. I got it from Katsushige Shingo. <laughs> uh, that says, uh, as Lacan puts it, the Japanese subject relies on the constellated sky rather than on a unary trait for primordial identification. So you're always plural in a constellated sky from uh, defining yourself in a plurality of ways based on plurality of reference versus, versus an illusionary unity. <laughs> That is what Western uh, suffer from. <laughs> That's weird because aren't Japanese people versed in Buddhism? Don't they meditate? Uh, <laughs> because like when you meditate... Yeah, meditation opens... Meditation is feeling that like you have a self that is is living without your thoughts so like you have a very strong sense of self it's funny you you go there because so first of all isn't so you have a very strong sense of self maybe but isn't the goal of this kind of meditation and of buddhism in particular to dissolve your ego in the end to understand that this self is so so maybe it would work if everyone was a pro at meditation right <laughs> It does, but also what it does is, like, by wanting to remove the self, you make the self way clearer than it would be without meditation. On the way. Yeah. <laughs> Halfway through. Uh, but I think this is, I think this is, uh, this doesn't apply to Japanese language, to Japanese people. I think people really overestimate the importance of Buddhism in Japan. <laughs> So maybe the, the conclusion of the dissolution of the ego for Buddhism got somehow a little bit ingested in Japanese uh, zeitgeist, let's say. I don't want people to get the wrong impression. I read a paper that says, oh, basically, uh, Japanese people basically go through, uh, from Buddhism, it, they go through Zen and Zazen meditation, and then they go, they get the, the whole thing. They the, the, This paper was compared to the whole thing. <laughs> Enlightening. <laughs> the paper was saying that uh, Lacan psychoanalysis is basically like Zen meditation, especially... Apparently, there's something in Zen about the variable uh, length of a session or something like that. Uh, but people who actually do that in Japan are very, very few. <laughs> so so I, don't, I don't know how significant that is. Maybe it's one of the reasons why psychoanalysis cannot be a thing, because there's already, like, if you want to get psychoanalyzed, you do uh, an internship at a monastery or something. <laughs> Maybe it's, it solves the niche market, but I don't think it influences the whole culture in a significant way. And another thing I had written down is that the fact that psychoanalysis is not very strong in Japan is also because psychiatry is really strong in Japan, probably from German influence at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. 
Today's podcast was sponsored by me. I'm just so great and full of myself. It made me think about something completely different, but I think it might explain also why in a less... So uh, it made me think about something else that might explain why Japanese people don't need psychoanalysis in a less nice way. (laughs) (laughs) Shoot. So it made me think about Sartre and his concept of being full of being, of being, like to be full of being. Not full of beings. Uh, (laughs) And full of being means you are full of of a concept of yourself. So for example, if you are a hairdresser, for example, you are a hairdresser, like the concept of a hairdresser. You're nothing oh, else. You're just full of it. And and same thing for you can be full of like being, I don't know, a firefighter. And like that's your identity. You are a firefighter. And like so for Sartre, like these people that are that are something are horrible people that need to be killed. But but it feels like being being something. Be like having this sense of identity, big identity, remove the lack because like it feels completely that like you are something. It's interesting because the I think in Japan you're never what you, so there is a very strong sense of you are this because you're defined by your role, but everyone has several roles. You have the role in your family, the role in your company, etc. So you would expect it to have a lack, <laughs> right? But but not really because like you are you are strongly something. Like, you always are something. Many you are many things in different contexts, but in one context you are this something. This salaryman, this like whatever, like this whatever. I can only think about salaryman. I don't know why. And maybe that's so it. Do you think that Sartre would want to kill everyone in Japan? <laughs> I think Sartre would want to kill a lot of people for no <laughs> fucking reason. And I think, like, I don't really like this definition because seeing identity is also a powerful thing, like, to be some... Like, I think he think that a lot of people are this weird shimmer of, like, just, like, being of being. I don't think it's... a I don't think there are many, many people that are this. Like, I think many people... Have a strong identity that, like, you can see all like the LGBTQ fight comes from these people that have a strong sense of identity with uh, like gender slash sexual identity. But there are also many many other things, and they, it doesn't mean like identifying with something doesn't necessarily mean that you are full of your like full of it. And I think it's very rare to see these yeah. people that are full of something. <laughs> Sony, how full of it works with the actual expression "full of it." <laughs> So what? So yeah, that could be. I don't know one explanation. That is, I think I agree. I think that's a very good explanation. But I want to go back to the so to this fragmentation of self and uh, this kind of like. It kind of comes with weak self boundaries, right? If you're on a higher level, maybe of interdependence, uh, because you don't stand as an isolated I, you depend on a bunch of others to just define yourself, at least. So I thought that maybe one good. 
<laughs> one one thing that we could talk about is how Japanese the Japanese culture is a lot more collectivist than uh, the Western culture. The no need to be psychoanalyzed thing in Japan is because of an oceanic feeling that they experience in non-individualist society. Oceanic. Yeah, I read that in one paper. I don't remember which one. <laughs> I think so. This this all comes down to maybe <laughs> maybe I'll talk to, talk about it now. Uh, there is three major milestones in Japanese psychoanalysis, and maybe the biggest one is the concept of amai by Takeo Doi, which is the a sort of uh, so a concept he coined the term to describe the passive love let's say like it's a form of love that you you have for other people like you can count on other people essentially my notes say apparently japanese people experience for one another a sort of transference love it's not like a <laughs> romantic love in any way but it's some sort of trust bound reliance bound but to anyone else or like to the acquaintances to anyone else there's a passive so there, there are the, an, an oceanic feeling of am i of uh, reliability mm. of each other and so maybe Uh, the individualistic culture is not really helping with uh, <laughs> with feeling lacking, and this is kind of helping with or feeling lacking. So, because everyone loves each other in a society, <laughs> basically, it feels like yeah, love is a strong word, isn't it? But yeah, that's that's what he says. Am I is a form of passive love? No, <laughs> care, care. Uh, yeah, 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 say maybe. Care. yeah. Maybe since everyone kind of supposedly, which I, I, I think yeah. it's a pretty big, uh, pretty bold asser assertion. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, yeah. Let's say that his thesis is that there is a form of care of everyone for everyone else. And so maybe what we can get out of this is like maybe in a less individualistic culture, you're less suffering from your lack. That would make sense. But I think like even if we remove ourselves a bit from psychoanalyst theory, I think you can just like see our earlier culture have a way stronger connection to their neighbor and to their surrounding. Meaning even like 300 years ago in France, like you would have like this village that are very strongly, like everyone is linked together. Like they live the same lives, they help each other, blah, blah, blah. And like in each, like in the last 200 years, like with the industrialization, like we And like with going to like big cities, we kind of remove that link with your neighbor. We kind of remove that like help and care that you can have with like people that are not your direct family. You become more isolated. And, and like you can see being people being alone, being alone and without like talking about full theory, like you can see that living in a big city alone makes you feel alone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. It's It's true. Yeah. I I think it's true. It's probably not that much uh, not specific to Japan in that case. <laughs> and like, but no. But the thing with specific to Japan is, even without the small village, even without like this direct connection, maybe because it's not an individualistic culture, maybe they learned how to feel that, to feel that like not being alone and to feel care, being taken care of 
in a society which is like which have the biggest city in the world which like yeah. you can... i mean that's basically what this guy says like takeo doi i think that's a bit overblown <laughs> i think people still get to feel lonely in cities and stuff like that maybe it's lessened but <laughs> but in the same times like when you go to japan and, and like tokyo just the fact that people won't i don't know still people won't beat you up like i know i forgot my phone in like a vr arcade for like two hours on the table and it was still there two hours after that and like that would never happen anywhere else in the world like anywhere else i guess <laughs> shouldn't be surprising that in a less adversarial environment people will thrive more let's <laughs> say <laughs> yeah but so to go back to your paper this is maybe the feeling of like care yeah, like meaning exactly. everyone care for each other in a small way if you find a wallet you don't keep it you, you give it back but it's very present and like it's it a does good change feeling. something yeah. that's, that's very like true. it really does change something and you like i would have never forgotten like it, it was after three weeks it was in the last three days that that happened i would have never forgot my my phone anywhere in paris Like that would have never happened. Like my brain is just like no, like that just can't happen. Like it never happened to me. And after three weeks in Japan, like I just forgot. You were already so comfortable. <laughs> like maybe it's too early or too late in, in the conversation, <laughs> but like it's very clear that Japanese people are not the most happy people on earth <laughs> like, like it's very clear that french people are not the most happy people on like in any people are not the most happy people on earth then haven't solved anything they have the same problems they have the same symptoms they have a, a, a lot of shit gone wrong so then there's clearly two perspectives like one which is western which have like this individuality trait which we are individuals that like sing of themselves as individuals Obviously, they live in a society, but at first we have a, a eye, like maybe illusionary eye, but like we still have a eye. It's also very clear that Japanese people less so. After that conversation, it might be clearer that like Japanese people less so have this illusion of a of an eye and and just live in that constant plurality of context that like change themselves. But is that just not a difference of like live? Because like when we're talking about it, it might seem that like it's better to live like that than to live with like an illusionary eye. Why? Yeah, it's it's true that it's not as if they were they had solved happiness, right? They still <laughs> yeah. they have record suicide or whatever. But yeah. maybe it just explains why psychoanalysis is not necessary or useful. Maybe they solved whatever psychoanalysis is for, but they have other things, other problems. <laughs> okay, so so okay, so they don't have that problem. Like that problem is Western, basically, yeah. but they have other shit to solve. I guess that's what it means. That means we won't discover the the answer to life <laughs> in this podcast. <laughs> But we discovered the answer to a problem, which apparently if you solve it, there is other problems. <laughs> if you're bilingual, you're fucked. I don't think you should learn Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> Because then you solve one issue and you have this Or maybe one. you solve the, like, maybe you have two issues or maybe you have two solutions. 
I don't Ooh. know. And you can so only the have English part solve the Japanese part and the Japanese part solve the mm. English part. You can only have one growing up, right? So Well you can have two. Well I can't go back to being a baby and have my first no. <laughs> that is true. Like that you can't do. And you can't actually be native bil what's in like you don't have the same way even if you're completely bilingual, if you learn after twelve, like you don't have the same way of being yeah. bilingual and like can still bilingual. it can still inform you maybe you can uh, trade a psychoanalysis session for by uh, by learning japanese instead <laughs> or by meditating instead i was like it's too expensive time wise and then i remember how much you pay a psychoanalyst <laughs> and i'm like maybe <laughs> maybe yeah, it's not that expensive <laughs> so this this is a good conclusion right this is not the be all end all it's not gonna save your life from pain and misery but maybe if you're a little more like maybe it can help you accept ambiguity in your life <laughs> If you if you accept ambiguity in your life the way that Japanese people supposedly do, you might suffer less from this, but suffer from something else. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, well, you know what? You try that, listeners, and tell us how it goes, and we'll discuss it in our next episode of, uh, of follow-ups. <laughs> <laughs> you have one month to learn Japanese, go to Japan, live like a Japanese guy, uh, and That's come not going to be possible with borders right now, but... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. At least let us think what you let us know what you think on all the socials, not daily podcasts in one word, and we'll discuss your impression of this heavy episode next time. See you not. See you not tomorrow. tomorrow. Bye.